0: Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 4. First one. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now we had to go through Samaria. So we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be with us here. Meet us where we're at um, and speak to us. We pray all these things in your name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat, everyone. When I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite foods, and it's still up there, actually, it's still one of my favorite foods, uh, was men Vietnamese sandwiches. Uh, And I know I might be biased seeing as I'm Vietnamese, but I have good reasons. Uh, First, it's made on the very best kind of bread, the French baguette. Uh, Second, it has the best condiments, that extra greasy Vietnamese mayonnaise uh, and pâté. Uh, Third, Vietnamese cold-cut meats are just superior, and if you order it with grilled pork, then there's really no contest. Fourth, uh, pickled daikon, cilantro, cucumbers, and jalapenos are, are bursting with far more flavor than your usual lettuce-tomato. Not that I don't love that. Uh, And then fifth, if you can believe it, when I was a kid, they only cost a dollar. I know. I know. Uh, Growing up in the 90s, but me and Vietnamese food hadn't quite made it into mainstream food culture yet, Um, but as far as I was concerned, in the world of subway and boring bologna and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that all my friends had. Uh, The enemy reigned supreme, by far. Uh, But, like I said, this was also the 90s. It was a very different time for a Vietnamese kid growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood in school, uh, in the suburbs. Uh, To all the Gen Zers here, you are the most diverse generation and the most culturally accepting. And so I'll never forget... The first time that I brought a Ben to school for lunch, I was, I was really excited. Uh, I was so excited that we had leftover sandwiches, they were probably from a church event or something, um, and that I would get to bring it for lunch. While my friends were stuck with their boring blowing sandwiches or the questionable cafeteria pizza, um, I remember pulling the sandwich out of the lunch bag um, and unwrapping it in that crinkly white paper and the rubber band. And then the room, just flooding with this aroma of daikon and pate. And I thought, mmm. Meanwhile, everyone around me was like, ugh, what is that smell? And I'd be like, uh, well, it's, it's my lunch. It's a Vietnamese sandwich. Well, it smells rank. And that meat, why is it gray? Or that weird pink with little splotches on it? It's called, gah, yeah, it's, I guess you could say it's like Vietnamese bologna, but it's pretty good. Well, it looks gross. And in that moment, a rush of embarrassment just flooded in. My face felt flush and my stomach turned. Suddenly, my sandwich wasn't so amazing anymore. Suddenly, I felt like my friends were no longer my friends, but somehow my superiors. And somehow I felt even more like an outsider, an alien even, ultimately alone, having to defend the sandwich of my people and losing, feeling judged and outcast. In that moment, all of my social anxieties that I had harbored as a kid, feelings of otherness, insecurities about my shyness and awkwardness, felt like they were the truest things about me. Like these traits and these feelings were my central identity all because I wanted to bring a beloved ben to school for lunch. And I didn't know it then, I didn't call it this, but what I was experiencing at the time was shame. Psychologist Annette Kammerer, in, uh, in an article she writes in The Scientific American, defines shame like this. Shame is the uncomfortable sensation we feel in the pit of our stomach when it seems we have no safe haven from the judging gaze of others. We feel shame when we violate the social norms that we believe in. We feel shame when we violate the social norms that we believe in. We've all been there. Maybe you too have had near-traumatic experiences of bringing your lunch and having your culture mocked. Or maybe not, because ethnic food is cool now. But my Vietnamese sandwich, my Vietnamese, violated the social norms of a predominantly white culture and uninteresting sandwiches. Maybe your experience with shame is a little deeper and a little more wounding than Maybe your shame centers on something like your physical appearance and, and how it doesn't seem to fit in with the social norm. It violates the social norms that we've been conditioned to believe in. The social norms that get reinforced by the media we consume, the people that we're around. And while in many ways today's culture is generally more accepting, the level of acceptance is somehow ironically countered by the presence of this cancel culture phenomenon. Whether we realize it or not, too, for many of us, the shame probably started earlier than we ever thought. Research shows that seeds of shame can be planted from the time that we're infants, depending on how our parents and our caregivers gave or did not give us attention. For some of us, our shame finds its roots in our homes, what should be safe spaces. And this isn't to to launch us into some resentful blame game kind of thing, but for some of us, the shame that we live with comes from the things that our parents or our family members have said to us in the past, or the things that they still say to us. Now let's be honest, being predominantly a a Vietnamese American community here, there's no doubt that our lives and our our sense of self are shaped in some way by an honor-shame culture. For some, the church is where you feel the most shame. And for some, the church is specifically the, the, the place where you feel watched and even judged. The only place where it seems like people care about every little thing that you do, especially the things that you do wrong. And let me just say that if that's you, thank you for deciding to be here. I'm sorry that that has been your experience. Shame is Not the way of Jesus, it's actually the way of the enemy. Regardless of our backgrounds, we've all experienced shame, either in a small way or a big way. And perhaps your life is colored by the effects of shame right now, or maybe you're even suffering under the weight of it. We are currently in our series titled Being with Jesus uh, we're, we're journeying through the Gospel of John, focusing specifically on one-on-one encounters with Jesus to ask this big question. What does encountering and in being with Jesus do to us? So today we talk shame. In a nutshell, uh, we're going to scratch the surface of the topic of shame, and then talk about some of the effects of shame as seen in Scripture and our own experiences, and then land on Jesus and what he does about it. That's kind of like your bird's eye view of today's teaching. Then, in the fall, uh, we're going to take a deeper dive with a whole series on shame. So, if you feel like today is just the tip of the iceberg, that's because it is. Uh, Stick around, we'll get back to it in the fall. But for now, let's jump in right at the beginning of all things. Genesis. If you want to turn this, Genesis chapter 2, it'll likely be up on the screen. And it's a long way to the left of John. Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just going to read verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed first thing to note is this. There was, at one point in time, there was a pre-shame world. A world in which there was no shame. And so before we go on, just, just take a minute and think about that. Think of all the insecurities you might have about yourself. Think about all the times you've felt judged. Think of all the times you've hated yourself or something about you. All the times you felt like you had to hide something about yourself. And then imagine a world in which those feelings just don't exist. Hold that possibility in your mind. Now we're gonna jump ahead to chapter three. Right, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We live in the shadow of the fall. Sin is Reality, And so with that, we live in a world in which shame is a reality of life. For many of us, it's a day-to-day experience. For us, insecurity, judgment, feelings of worthlessness are normal. Shame wreaks havoc on our mental and emotional health. You know, the connection's pretty obvious, but research shows strong links between shame and anxiety and depression. As we see here in Genesis, it does a whole lot more than that. Immediately after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, the effects of shame are unleashed. They're suddenly aware of this. They're naked. And so they hide. They sow fig leaves to cover themselves, hiding, in a sense, from each other. And then they, they try to run away from God. Good luck with that. Hiding. Self-isolation. Hold those in your mind. Who here is a fan of Stranger Things? Okay, all right. Okay, since that's the case, nothing will be spoiled for you because I'm sure you're caught up on all the seasons. The rest of you, I'm sorry, I'll only spoil a little bit. In season four, we're introduced pretty early on. In fact, he's in the trailer. We're introduced pretty early on to the main villain, Vecna. Uh, he's like this monster from the upside down with like, these eerie human-like qualities who appears to prey on, on seemingly random teenagers, right, in the town of Hawkins. Each episode, we see him toy with and then psychologically torture each victim before killing them in a pretty chilling and grotesque way that I won't describe in detail. Uh, but with each victim, you start to piece together patterns, right? Vecna always targets victims that feel or harbor deep guilt and shame. When an attack would come, he would isolate each victim, trap them in 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 these trance-like hallucinations, cutting them off from reality, and then conjuring some distorted version of a past event that would trigger intense guilt and shame. And then this crescendos until the victim can't take it anymore and then he kills. So on one level, we get a pretty diabolical new villain, unlike any we've ever seen before in the first three seasons. But on another level, through the course of season four, we get an expose on the topic of shame and its effects. Isolation, alienation, and loneliness. And with that, the distortion of reality, which then gives way to lies, feelings of worthlessness, anxiety, self-loathing, depression, and the list goes on. Now, jump back to Genesis 3. What do Adam and Eve do after they eat the fruit? They hide. They self-isolate. Now, here's a bit of irony. Backtrack a bit to verse 1. Notice that this whole thing with the serpent tempting Eve starts with isolation. The serpent goes to Eve when she's isolated. And then all he has to do is plant an idea. Did God actually say? Eve is isolated. She's alone. And he plants an idea that distorts reality. Because when we're alone, truth is easily distorted and twisted. This is why it's so easy for us to live in these echo chambers that we fashion for ourselves. The truth is that God is trustworthy, he's good, he is love, and we find all that we need in him. All the serpent had to do was find Eve in isolation and then get her to question that reality, even though it was a reality that she herself experienced, a truth that she herself experienced. After she and Adam eat of the fruit shame continues these same effects isolation think about it your deepest shame who knows about it likely not very many people how often do we bring it up with god for some of us maybe sometimes for many of us probably not very often we isolate thought experiment Who here thinks that God is angry at them most of the time and wants to pour out wrath? He has to be appeased somehow. Who here thinks that God looks at you in love most of the time? Now which is truer? Who's unsure? You don't have to raise your hand. Even with our perception of God, we waver between two realities. We're unsure. Our shame keeps us in hiding. It keeps us isolated. And when we are isolated, like Eve, we are extra vulnerable to the enemy. We are vulnerable to the enemy distorting truth and reality, just like he's always been doing since the beginning. Just as Vecna does in Stranger Things. Anyone else find him eerily similar to Satan? He's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And all he has to do is implant untrue ideas that distort reality. According to Jesus, Satan is the father of lies. And then when we are isolated in our shame, what usually happens? Our shame becomes this monster in our heads, right? This is why so many of us are afraid of being alone with our thoughts. Because for many of us, it means being alone with our shame. When we are alone, our shame preaches to us. You'll never measure up. You'll never be as good as blank or as pretty as blank or as smart as that person. You are unlovable. You are not worthy. You are ugly. You are disgusting. You deserve to be alone. You don't deserve anyone or anything. The negative things people say about you, they're true. And even God would never want you. God would never love you. He would never accept you. He would never forgive you. He's probably just really angry with you. And the more these thoughts swim freely in our minds, uncontested, the more they get internalized into our hearts. And we we start to really believe these lies about ourselves. And we forget that that's what they are, lies. Shame distorts reality. Shame distorts reality. Last week we talked about mental maps. Over time, as shame plagues our minds, our mental maps begin to look like this. I really am an ugly person. Cue the low self-esteem, the self-hate, the depression, thoughts of self-harm, distorted perception of others, and distorted perception of God. The worst thing is that since we're isolated, we face these thoughts, these lies, alone. Isolated from God and isolated from community, just like Adam and Eve. God and community are our only hope for contesting lies, for for holding on to truth, and for healing. But we remain hidden, trapped with lies last bit about Stranger Things, I promise. There's this bit where you get a glimpse into the upside down, and Naomi knows what I'm talking about. It's the alternate dimension where Vecna traps the minds of his victims. In the upside down, you know, everything's just dark and red, and we see the people he's attacking trapped in these grotesque tentacles, isolated with, from reality with seemingly no hope. This is kind of what shame does. It traps and it chokes. So is there any hope? Let's turn back to today's text. We're going to pick it up right at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself is not baptized, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So when he came to a town Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this whole passage, uh, but we're going to focus on a couple details. Verse six. It was about the sixth hour, which meant it was noon. Then, verse nine. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? These two verses set up the social construct of the time, the social norms that people believed in at that time. It doesn't matter if they were true or not. It's what people believed. We feel shame when we violate the social norms that we believe in. These were the social norms that the Jews at the time believed. First, Samaritans, which were basically mixed-race Jews, were believed to be infuriated. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Second, women were viewed as lower, and it was considered a bit scandalous for a man to interact with a woman alone, which is exactly what Jesus does here. And then third, the time of day is a big clue. The woman went to the well at noon in the desert. That would have been the worst time to go out to get water because it would have been the hottest time of the day. No one got water from the well at this time, except this woman. And we learn why in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true the woman has had a lot of sexual partners. And the guy she's with right now isn't even her husband. And so to take stock, the woman would have felt in fear because she was a Samaritan and because she was a woman. But she's also involved in sexual sin which alienates her from her own people, her own community. And this adds another layer to the effects of shame. Shame traps us in sin and addiction. Who here has ever struggled with addiction and then felt ashamed as a result of that? No matter how ashamed you felt, you could then never get yourself out of it. No matter how hard you try, you could never break the addiction. We feel shame over our pornography addiction, our substance addiction, or maybe even something as small and trivial as like a shopping addiction. But no matter how ashamed we feel, we just can't stop And the more we try to stop but can't, the shame compounds, and then we feel worse about ourselves. And in our shame, in our need for quick comfort, we turn right back to our addiction. And for those of us who struggle with with depression and self-loathing, there's a good chance you've wrestled with the desire to hurt yourself. The shame you feel about yourself leads you to want to harm yourself. It even makes you feel like you deserve it in some way. And you're even deluded into thinking that you'll get some sort of relief from that. Remember, shame distorts reality. And if and when you do hurt yourself, you find that the relief is only momentary, and then you feel more ashamed for actually acting on your urge to hurt yourself. And let me just pause and say that if this is you, if this is what you're struggling with, You need to talk to someone. Please reach out to a friend, a family member, and please seek professional help. But shame traps us in our sin and in our addiction. Shame tells us that we don't deserve better. That all we deserve is to remain there in our sin and addiction. And as we remain stuck, shame tells us that we can never change. You'll never change. You'll never transform. Psychologist Brene Brown states, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes that we are capable of change. Jesus wants to love and to transform us, but shame lies to us and says that we can never change. Shame tells us that we can never kick that addiction. Shame tells us that we don't have it in us to change. Shame tells us, just give in, just quit. And then on top of that, shame tells us that God doesn't care, or that he'll never accept us. That is the ultimate lie. That we are somehow beyond the reach of Jesus, beyond his love and beyond his healing. Let's pause for a second, let's take a breath. Read verse 17 again. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus already knows this about her. He knows all of it. All of the things that she hides. All of the things that keep her isolated, alienated, cast out. All of her shame. He already knows. He knew all of this before verse one. Three reasons for her to remain trapped in shame. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's involved in sexual sin. Three lines that keep her from Self worth, love, and community. Three lines that Jesus then steps over. The truth is, He knows you. He knows all of the things that you would prefer to hide. He knows all of the things that keep you isolated, alienated, and trapped. He knows your shame. If there's anything to take away from today's sermon, it's this. Jesus comes to us in our shame. He welcomes and receives us in our shame. That's just his character. That's who he is. He spent his entire ministry specifically seeking at those whom society and social norms deem to be Shameful. And so if you feel shame, if you experience it, that actually makes you a perfect candidate for Jesus. He does not hold your shame against you in the same way that when you welcome him into your life, he does not hold your sin against you. As the Apostle Paul writes, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God comes to us right where we are. He always makes the first move. It's been like that since the beginning. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit and promptly run away from God, God comes to them. He seeks them out. And then he asks, where are you? And then he clothes them. He covers them. Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman already knowing everything about her and holding none of it against her. He comes to her as she is. And notice how he doesn't say anything like, well, first you must do this, this, and that, and then I will grant you living water. He just engages her where she's at, suggests the possibility that there is something new, something better than the life that she's feeling trapped in now and offers a choice. Jesus always offers us a choice and a chance to respond. The living water that Jesus offers is simply new life in him. It's a simple metaphor, but with it, Jesus addresses our greatest need. The isolation, the alienation, the brokenness that Adam and Eve experienced ultimately stems from broken relationship with God. Jesus bridges that gap and provides a pathway out of it, out of the alienation. Shame leads us to isolate ourselves from God. It makes us feel like God would never want us or that he's too angry with us to love us. Jesus comes to bring us back to God. He restores relationship with God, dispelling all the lies that the enemy wants us to believe about God. Now, let's read ahead. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then fast forward to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. There's a change here. At the start of the episode, we see the woman going out to get water at high noon. No one else would be around. We see her avoiding people. Here, we see her returning to community. She returns to community to tell them about Jesus. In other words, Jesus comes to us in our shame, in our isolation, and then restores us to community. Shame isolates us from community. It makes us feel, well, if people knew this about me, they would never accept me or want me. Or I need to present myself in this way and hide that stuff about myself for people to actually like me. Jesus brings us into community in which we no longer have to hide. In my walk with Jesus, I've found it necessary to have friends that I can confess everything to. And I'm serious when I say everything. And at first, it was definitely scary. Like, I totally went through the thought process of, man, if they knew this about me, they would totally see me in another light. They they might even think lesser of me. And they might not even be my friend anymore. But when we're in community with nothing to hide, nothing to try to cover up, Shame actually loses its power. It loses its grip on us. Now this doesn't mean that community is a place where we share the deepest, darkest parts of us, including all of our sin, and then leave it at that. Choosing to remain unchanged. That's a misunderstanding of community in Christ because there's no transformation. But community is a place where we can share all the darkest, deepest parts of us in order to invite healing and changed. This is community in Christ and this is what Jesus restores. And when we are restored to relationship with God and in real community, change we'll find is possible. Transformation happens. Shame would have us believe that change is impossible, that we're stuck the way we are. But with God, nothing is impossible when we are restored to relationship with God and community, when we receive his invitation and say yes to life with him, yes to living water, yes to abiding with him, being with him, living life with him, walking step by step with him, the one who does not hold any of our shame against us, we will be changed, it's inevitable. When we say yes to his invitation to community, allowing others to walk with us, wrestle with us, challenge us and encourage us and to lift us up, we will be changed. And so to answer our grand question, what does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? Encountering Jesus frees us from shame. Little by little, we're set free. Encountering Jesus lets us know that our shame does not define us. It's not the truest thing about us. And that he does not hold it against us. If anything, our shame, when viewed properly through the lens of Jesus, is the voice of our soul crying out for living water. It's our soul crying out for Jesus. Nothing else will do, not even our addictions. Just as the physical water in the men were not truly what the Samaritan woman needed. We know Jesus frees us from our shame because he took it upon himself. Jesus bore the cross, the most shameful way to be executed in the Roman Empire. He was literally shamed as he did so. He was mocked, spat on, stripped of his clothes. He bore our shame to free us from our shame as he bore our sins, freeing us from our sins. There is freedom in Jesus. And so to end, I just want to leave two questions for us to sit with. The first is what God asks Adam in, Eve in the beginning. Where are you? Where are you? Jesus is coming to you. He wants to, to be with you to love you? Where are you right now? Are you hiding? Are you reluctant? Are you stuck in cycles of sin and addiction? Are you in a state of doubt, doubting that he would ever love you? Where are you? The second question is what Jesus asks the woman. Do you want living water? He promises something new, something better, something truer and beautiful. Do you want living water? Do you want to take a step in a different direction? Are you tired of the same old cycles? Do you want living water? There's always a choice. But the promise of Jesus is real. The love of Jesus is real. The power of Jesus is real. It's so real that the Samaritan woman could not help but tell her community about him. So real that the apostles gave everything to follow him and then tell the whole world about him. So real that he changed the course of history. And so real that he continues to transform lives today in the world around us and even in this community here. Where are you? Do you want living more? And if you choose, you can respond to these two questions in two very simple, yet bold and risky ways. First, dare to be vulnerable before God. Respond to his question, where are you with, here I am. This week, in prayer, in your quiet time, Practice confession. Just be open with Him. pour out your heart. All the things that you hold shame over, all the things that you try to hide, all of your insecurities, just lay it out. Do this knowing that Jesus holds none of it against you. That is truth. Second, and this is scary, I'll be honest, Choose one friend, someone you feel really comfortable with. Set up a little coffee date for the purpose of confessing something to each other. It can be one thing or more, but just start where you're at. Take that risky step of faith in your relationship. Step over that fear that says, oh, they might see me differently if they knew this about me. This is how you respond when Jesus asks, Where are you? Do you want living water? Let's stand and pray. Jesus, thank you for being our friend, our brother. Thank you for being the kind of friend who doesn't hold judgment over us. The kind of friend who doesn't hold our shame over us, our past offenses and our guilt against us. Thank you for being the friend who comes to us right where we are and loves us just as we are. But thank you also for inviting us into something new so much better, something completely new, something true and something beautiful. Thank you for inviting us to be your friends. Thank you for inviting us to be with you and to live our lives with you. We pray that as we do that, we would know your power. We pray that we would know your power over shame. And we pray that as we step into life with you, that we'll do so boldly in a risky way that involves us going through all of the things that we're afraid of and we pray that you would change us as we do it, that you would transform us, and that you would ultimately heal us. We pray all these things in your name, amen.